everyone. It's uh, good to be together. We find ourselves in a, another unusual situation, and so thank you for uh, being with us today. Thank you for being flexible. Uh, we made this adjustment midweek when we when the technology arrived in the mail, and uh, we wanted to give it a shot. And so uh, I am appreciative to all those uh, technical folks who bent over backwards to make this possible, so that we could be able to uh, be together in this way today. So uh, thank you to all of uh, you guys, uh, Mark and and Stephen and others who uh, uh, really worked hard to make this happen. So we're appreciative of our guys who can figure stuff out like this and um, and appreciative that you were uh, willing to be flexible and join us here in this way. So we are uh, going to be reading this morning from Romans chapter 8, as Chris mentioned. And so you've got your Bible. You have um, uh, opportunity now to open it uh, to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be reading verses 12 through 17. And uh, let's, uh, let's read those verses now. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and uh, uh, praise you for your word, that you have not left us alone in this life to try and find our way to you, to fumble around and imagine with one another what is true and what's ultimate and what must this God be like that we know in our hearts exists. And uh, we, we're not left alone, that you have revealed yourself to us. And so, Father, we, uh, we rejoice in that fact. We rejoice that you've given us your word and you've given it to us in abundance and in our own language. Language, and uh, we live in a time where we have helps and tools and things that would uh, that would assist us in understanding what your word says. We don't we don't have to learn Greek and Hebrew, though we have that opportunity also. We don't have to learn Latin, though if we wanted to, we could do that. Uh, but we have your word to us written in our own language that we can pick up and read and we can study and it's clear to us. And you've given us this opportunity that we have elders who have been entrusted with your word in a sense to teach it to us. So we get to join together freely. We get to be here this morning, even though it's uh, circumstances are uh, unusual. We get to be together to sit under the teaching of your word. To be instructed from uh, the very inspired words of Scripture, to worship you in light of that instruction. So we have, uh, we are blessed, and we thank you, and we praise you, and we worship you. And Father, this morning as we come to this passage, I pray that you would be at work through the proclamation of your word, that your spirit would use your word to do surgery in our own hearts. 
to give life, maybe where there is no life, to root out sin, unbelief, to minister to us, even this morning, even during this time. So, Father, we ask for your help. We submit to it now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, in our passage, we're going to be focusing on our identity. Our identity is crucial to our lives. Who we are really matters. It matters with how we think, how we relate to other people. And if we are confused about our identity, it results in confusion in our own minds, results in confusion in our relationship to other people, in our lives. We are confused in our lives if we are confused about who we are. And we see this again and again in Scripture. Of course, we see one example with uh, Jacob, who wrestled with God. At the conclusion of that time, what did God do? He changed his name. He, he said, you, you, you're not going to be called Jacob anymore. You're going to be called Israel. Jacob has something to do with like heel grabber or something about the heel. And it was, you can see that earlier in life that kind of characterized what Jacob was like. But after this time of wrestling with God, God changes his name to Israel, which has a completely different meaning. It's something like God fights or... Um, something like that, that that this would now become true of now Israel. His identity was important, and when his identity needed to be changed, God changed his name. His identity was clarified, and that is because our identity is crucial to our life. And so we come to our passage this morning. And you see that he's going to talk right off the bat about our our identity. And actually, all the way through today's passage, that's a main focus, is what is our identity? He says, first of all, we are debtors to the Spirit. We're debtors to the Spirit. We're not obligated to the flesh. Look at verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We're not obligated to the flesh anymore. We died to the flesh with Christ. We were buried with Him in death. We were raised with Christ. And of course, if you remember what we've been studying over these last several chapters, you remember from chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, where Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's a passage that, when I counsel with someone when they're seeking to be baptized, that's a passage we go through because the person being baptized needs to understand the waters of baptism don't create something new in them, but it's a symbol of this change of identity, a change of loyalty. A change of obligation from the way things were as an unbeliever in the flesh. Now in Christ, we have died with Him, we've been buried with Him, and we've been raised with Him so that our identity is in Christ. And so Paul starts off and says, we are not obligated to the flesh. And he doesn't say it outright, but the the clear implication is we are obligated 
to the Spirit. We are obligated to the Spirit. We have died to that which held us captive, so that, for the purpose that, for the goal that, we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We do have an obligation to the Spirit. That obligation to the flesh has been put away, but now we are debtors to the Spirit. We are obligated, obliged to the Spirit. Christians have received life by the Spirit. We now walk according to the Spirit, as we talked about last week. Our mindset, our worldview is determined by the Spirit. Christians are indwelt by the Spirit. And one day, one day, when we are raised, when our bodies are raised to new life, it will be the Spirit who does that. He will raise our mortal bodies so that we will finally and fully in our whole being be redeemed and be saved. We are obligated, we are debtors to the Spirit, not to the flesh. And so he says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so he says we're not obligated, we are not debtors to the flesh anymore, we are now obligated, we are debtors to the Spirit, and so, he says, we need to mortify, we need to put to death the deeds of the body. He says we need to practice mortification and we will see life. And so, it's important for us to understand before we pursue this discussion of what is mortification any further, it's important for us to understand who it is that he's talking about. This is not a case, when we get to verse 13, of a Christian at a crossroads. As if Paul's talking to Christians and he says, all right, Christian, you're redeemed, you're in Christ, but if you don't mortify the deeds of the body, if you don't put to death the deeds of the body, you, Christian, will die. But, Christian, if instead you put to death the deeds of the body, you, Christian, will live. See, that would be a case of a Christian at a crossroads, and that is not what he is talking about in this passage. I'll remind you where we've come from. It's always important when we're understanding God's Word, when we're studying it, that we think about where we have come from. What ground have we covered? What have we already learned that brought us, <clears throat> brought us to the place where we are now? where we're asking these questions. So you don't just open your Bible, open up to Romans 8.13 and begin to try to exegete it, begin to try to understand what this verse means without connection to what goes around us. So I will remind us, even just from Romans chapter 8 already, that for the Christian, there is therefore now no condemnation. There is no condemnation for the Christian. I will remind us also that the law of the Spirit of life has set the Christian free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled perfectly, finally, ultimately for the Christian. 
I will remind us what we looked at last week, that the Christian has the mindset of the things of the Spirit. He has the mindset of the things of the Spirit. The Christian lives according to the Spirit. And the mindset of the Christian is life and peace. Those are all references to the paragraph that came before. There was a description, remember, not of what you ought to do. There are some things in there you ought to do, but it was a description that Paul was making about two different categories of people. Those who are Christians and thus are in the Spirit versus those who are non-Christians and thus are in the flesh. He drew a hard distinction when he said in verse 9 of chapter 8, he says, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So he's not just saying you need to make your choice today. He will say that in other places. He will say that in other ways, but that is not what he's saying right here. He is describing the Christian. And now, in our passage, he's describing this. The Christian will put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. That's what the Christian will do. Should the Christian do that? Of course he should do that. He ought to do that. And the Christian will do that. The non-Christian, however, will not, and he will die. He will suffer the consequences of not doing so. And so we need to have that in mind that he is making a description about Christians and about what Christians do and what Christians are like. God didn't save us simply so he could have lifeless trophies of his mercy. As if he were collecting rocks. Oh, this is a great rock. It's beautiful. I think I'm going to put it over here. This rock is exceptionally ugly. I think I'm going to keep it so I can remember. He didn't just save us so we would be lifeless trophies. He saved us to restore us to his image. There was a purpose beyond just the salvation, beyond just the collecting of the rock. He's actually restoring us. This redemption goes beyond just where we're going to spend eternity. Though, of course, that's an enormous question. His restoration goes beyond that. His restoration goes deeper because he wants to restore us to his image. He's going to talk later on in chapter 8 about the fact that He's going to conform us to the image of His Son. That is a purpose for which He saved us. Not just to put us on a shelf and show us off because we were exceptionally beautiful or exceptionally ugly, either one. He wants to restore us, and that's the purpose of His redemption. He wants to bring us back to life as it ought to be, in joyful service and adoration to Him, the way we were created to do. And so Paul says, we are to put to death the deeds of the body. We are to mortify the deeds of the body. Of course, that word mortification or mortify is just an older word. It means to put to death. And so the newer versions will say put to death. It means exactly the same thing. And so we are to mortify the deeds of the body. So I would 
recommend to you at this point a book that's uh, very famous. It's written by a man named John Owen. He was a uh, Puritan theologian and pastor and, and vice chancellor at Oxford and, and uh, wrote a lot. And he's, he can be very difficult to read, unfortunately. But he has a book that's called Mortification of Sin that I recommend every Christian read. Because he examines this verse and he examines our relationship as Christians, our relationship with sin. It's not an easy read. First of all, because he wrote it in a way that's very complex. His English is difficult to understand at times. You have to work hard. But there are so many gems in there. There's so much truth in there that I encourage you to do the work, to put in the work to read that book. And uh, he works his way through this passage and works his way through the believer's relationship with sin and what it means that we are to mortify the deeds of the body. But this morning, I'm not going to take us all the way through that book. It was tempting, uh, but I won't do that this morning. I will just recommend it to you. But just a couple of things I want us to point out. First of all, we need to have the right mindset for mortification. It requires a particular mindset. First of all, we need to have a right view of sin. We need to understand what sin really is. And how hateful it is to God. How vile it is to Him. It's not just a bad thing that leads to bad things in our lives. It's not just a bad choice that I made. Sin is hateful to God. It is rebellion against Him. Sin incurs judgment by Him because He hates it. And so we need to get a right view of sin. Very often... In our modern age, and probably through all ages, but I certainly see it in our age, we have a flippant view of sin. Eh, I'm saved, I'm, I'm under grace, so this little sin, what does it really matter? That is not God's view of sin. I remind you of Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah had that vision, and he saw the Lord in the temple... And the, the train of his robe filled the temple, and you've got that whole vision. And what does he see? He sees an image of, a reflection of, the glory of God. And here you have Isaiah, who's probably one of the holiest men in the land. And what's his response when he sees the glory of God? He doesn't say, that was great, I'm going to write a book about it and publish it about this vision of God that I saw, and I'll make a lot of money. Or he doesn't say, I'm going to go plant a church on that idea. So he falls down and he says, Woe is me! Probably one of the holiest men in the land says, Woe is me! For I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He says, I'm a sinner. When he saw God's holiness, he saw his sin for what it really was. And we need to do the same and not be flippant about sin. We need to get a right view of sin. And secondly, we need to deal with that sin. We don't just go through life holding our breath, realizing we're racking up all these sins and we're doing all of these sorts of things. But it'll be taken care of in the end and, you know, it's just the way it is because I'm only human. Well, yeah, you are only human. But humans were not created sinful. Humans were created in Adam and Eve to be in right relationship with God. And so there's something fallen, something broken about us. And so we need to be aware of that. And we need to realize not to have a flippant view of sin, but that we need to deal with sin. 
And thirdly, we, we, we need to realize we, we should want to deal with sin. We want to. It is contrary to our nature as redeemed people to rebel against our Father. And yet we do it. It is contrary to who we are as in Christ. It is rebellion against Him. It's a slap in the face of your Redeemer. And so we should want to deal with our sin. And then fourthly, you need to understand that in Christ we are able to deal with our sin. We have the Spirit of God living within us. We are able to deal with our sin. It's not just that we're a hopeless case and, yeah, it's just going to be like this because I'm only human and and once I die, things will get better, but that's just the way it is. We are able to deal with sin because we are in Christ. Remember what we talked about in chapter 6. Sin is no longer our master. No longer our master. We can deal with sin. So that's the the right mindset to have for mortification. But second, we need to have the right method for mortification. I'll read you this from Titus chapter 2. So Paul, again, he says in in, uh, Titus 2, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So what's the first method? Say no to sin. Say no to it. It's not your master. You don't have to obey it anymore. Say no to it. And secondly, there's a quotation from Owen that's very famous. He says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Don't be content with partial holiness. Yeah, I used to struggle with this thing. I don't struggle with that thing anymore. It's really great to be a mature Christian. Of course, I've got all of these other areas that I haven't dealt with yet, but I'm really just pleased and content with my lot because I dealt with this particular thing. Don't be content with partial holiness. You need to be killing sin, Owen says, or sin will be killing you. Thirdly, we need to kill sin at its source. Kill it at its source, which is in the mind. James 1.14 says, Each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We need to kill sin at its source and realize it starts in the mind. Fourthly, I will note that he says, put to death the deeds of the body. One of the failings of English is that it doesn't easily convey whether it's a singular or a plural. In this case, it's a plural. He's saying, you all, plural, put to death the deeds of the body. It's plural. And so, we're to be accountable to one another. This mortification is not something that I do by myself over here, disconnected from you. And you do it over there, disconnected from me. We've been called into the body of Christ 
And so, God has given responsibility to the church for church discipline. God has given us one another to encourage each other, to exhort one another about sin. And so we need to make ourselves accountable to other Christians. That will help in your battle against sin. And then fifthly, don't fall into legalism. I know I've just given you a list. And it's easy to take a list and put that on the wall and write some check mark spaces next to it so that you can tick them off as you do them. And when you do, hey, you're doing great. And if you don't, hey, you're doing terrible. We need not to slip into legalism, but to realize, what does he say? If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It is the Spirit who is at work. What we are doing is identifying our sin, identifying how hateful it is to God, and then we begin to work on it by making ourselves accountable to other people because other people are a means of grace that God uses in my own life. I expose myself to the gospel, the proclamation of God's word, and so I come to church and I read God's word, not because that's another thing to tick off, but because that is a means of God's grace in my life. When I read his word, when I hear his word proclaimed and taught, when I think upon the gospel and what Jesus has done for me, God's spirit is at work to apply the grace of God in my life so that he cuts right to the root of sin so that I begin to love him and respond to him more and more and love and respond to my sin less and less. Now, Owen's book is not short on this topic. It's relatively short, probably 50 or 60 pages. I don't know. But... I've summarized as best I can in a very short time what this idea of putting to death the deeds of the body really is. But I recommend that book to you. But look what he, how he continues. Verses 14 and 15, he talks about the fact that we are sons by adoption. I started this sermon by saying our identity is important. And so he starts off the passage by saying, look, you are debtors, but not to the flesh to do the things of the flesh. You instead are debtors. You're obligated to the spirit. And so you need to put to death the deeds of the body and do so by the spirit. And look how he continues in verse 14. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And I will note for you, first of all, the Spirit leads all sons and daughters. But sons is an important word in this point. The Spirit leads all of God's children. He's the Spirit of holiness, and so how does He lead us? He leads us into holiness. This is not talking about God's direction or guidance in your life. As in, do I make this choice or do I make that choice? Do I, do I buy this thing or that thing? Do I go over here and, and take this job or do I go over there and take that job? He's not talking about guidance by the Spirit in our life here. He's talking about how the Holy Spirit leads every one of His sons into holiness. 
That's the direction that he takes us. Each one, he leads us to put to death the deeds of the body. He's the spirit of holiness, and so he leads all of his people into holiness. So the spirit leads all sons. Secondly, he makes a statement about the spirit of slavery. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. What's that spirit of slavery that he's talking about? Well, again, he's referring to where we've come from in our discussion, where he talked about when we were under the law, when we were in the flesh. And the law would tell us what we had to do. And our flesh would utterly rebel against that, and we would not want to do that thing. We would not want to submit to God. We would not obey. We were, we were enslaved. And so, he said, we had received at that time a spirit of slavery so that we were put into a place where we were not free. We were bound by the flesh. We had flesh as our master. We were under the law as our master. The spirit of slavery was the result. And he says, you at this point have not received that spirit of slavery to fall back into fear anymore. That's not us. You who are in Christ instead have received the spirit of sons. He says, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. First of all, why does it say sons? And maybe some of your translations say sons and daughters or children. But in this point, it's important for us to remember he's using the word sons on purpose. Because in this time, in this day and age, in this culture in which he's talking, it was the son who inherited. Daughters did not inherit. Well, that's unfair and all that. I agree. But his point is important. He's saying, you are the child who inherits. You are not just offspring. You are the child who inherits. You have the spirit of adoption as sons of God. Inheritors of His. And so it's important when he says we have the spirit of sons, that we have this incredible position of privilege that we who once were far off from Him have been brought near. And how near have we been brought? We've been brought near enough that we are actually in His very family. More than that, we're in the place of inheriting. More than that, we have this intimate relationship that we call Him Abba, Father. That's a privilege that only His children have to be able to speak with Him on such terms, to have such a relationship where we are His children, where we get to call Him Father. And that's the position that we are in. So He says, we are sons by adoption, and then He continues on, and He builds on this idea of us being heirs of God. He continues in verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if, 
children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So first, the Spirit's testimony. The Spirit gives His own testimony to us. He co-witnesses to us with our own Spirit that we are sons of God. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our Spirit that we are children of God. He bears us that witness that we are a child of the King, that we are in this position of very great privilege. Now, I want to notice in passing, this is not simply a feeling, as in, I feel warm feelings towards God, or I sense that God has warm feelings towards me. I must be His child. That must be the witness of the Spirit. I want to encourage you that the Spirit of God works through the Word of God. And you will sense that witnessing of God's Spirit that you are His child, particularly under the preaching of God's Word. When God's Word is proclaimed, or when you are reading it, the Spirit of God will take that, and He will speak to you in the sense that He will witness that you are His child, if in fact you are His child. It's not just you had a thought on Tuesday morning, disconnected from the Word of God, disconnected from church, you were just driving to work and you felt something. That's not what he's talking about. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to speak to us. He will speak to us through His Word. And so when you read God's Word, the Spirit will testify, even if it's by means of conviction. And you read about what Christians should not do, and you realize you're doing that thing, He will convict you that you, Christian, should not be doing that thing. And thus He will bear witness to you. Likewise, when the Word is comforting and you're reading through the Psalms or there's a sermon being proclaimed and you're down and out and you're miserable, and the Word is proclaimed, the Spirit of God will testify to you, weak Christian, You are indeed a Christian, and I'm building you. And my Spirit is leading you into holiness. And this is something you're going through. And so His Spirit testifies with our spirit that indeed we are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. Now, there's something utterly unique about the relationship between the Father and the Son, Jesus. He is, after all, the unique, the only begotten Son of God. There is not another. He is unique, entirely unique. And so that relationship between the Father and the Son is a unique one, and we do not enter into that fully as if that now becomes true of us, that we now in some way are the second member of the Trinity? Of course not. But there is a similarity. There is an inheritance that we receive because we are in Christ. So what do we receive? Well, in chapter 5 and verse 1, we receive, because we are in Christ, we are co-inheritors of peace with God. We are co-inheritors of a position of grace. 
Because we are in Christ, we now inherit justification before God. We inherit reconciliation to God because we are in Christ. Because we are in Christ, we inherit the free gift of righteousness. Because we are in Christ, we inherit eternal life in Jesus. These are things we inherit because we are in Him. Because we are in Him, we inherit death to sin and life to God. We inherit freedom from the dominion of sin. And we inherit release from the captivity of the law. In short, as we talked about last week, what do we inherit? What he says in chapter 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Only reconciliation. And so we are heirs with Christ. Look how he continues. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What does that mean? Well, he's talking about the path to glorification. The path to glorification. Paul is not saying that we are glorified because we suffer. Rather, he's saying that we follow the same path to glorification that Jesus took. We will suffer as he suffered. Paul has said in Acts chapter 14, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's the path that Christians will take. Jesus himself said, in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus himself said we would have tribulation. Should we be surprised when we experience tribulation? No. Jesus said it would happen. Paul described that it would happen. And then it happens. And when you suffer as a Christian, you are in a very real sense suffering with Christ. You're following that same path. Well, how can that be? Let's take temptation, for example. When you experience temptation, a part of you deep down, your inner man, your mind, hates the fact that your flesh would even be tempted to do that thing. You suffer because of that temptation. Because that temptation is real. And a large part of you is tempted by that and wants to do that thing. And it causes inner turmoil. Because your inner man hates that. Doesn't want to do it. Your inner man wants to obey God. Your inner man sees that that is sinful. But a part of you loves it. A part of you wants to go after it. A part of you is ready to say yes to your flesh. And that's suffering. And by the way, that's a kind of suffering, in a sense, that Christ went through when he dealt with temptation himself. He faced temptation. Now, he didn't have this sinful nature like you and I have. But his temptation was a very real temptation so that it was appealing to him in some way. The temptation was real to him in some way to turn that stone into a loaf of bread. It was a real temptation. And so when you suffer temptation, 
you are suffering with Christ. And when you are opposed by the world, that is a way of sharing in Christ's suffering as well. The world hated him, and the world will hate you too, Christian. So when the world stands against us, maybe it's because of our love for and insistence on doing what is holy, insisting on God-honoring behavior. When we suffer because of that opposition, we're really suffering on His account. And when unbelievers despise us because of the gospel, this gospel that we proclaim, this gospel that we believe, when we have opposition from unbelievers, from the world on this behalf, we're really suffering for Christ. And so, when we suffer as Christians, we are suffering with Him. And so, our final point of application, Christian, take courage when you suffer with Christ. That suffering was the road that Christ took that led to His ultimate glorification. And the road that we take that leads ultimately to our glorification also takes us right through the midst of suffering. And so we are to take courage when we suffer. We are even to rejoice in our sufferings, as Paul says in Romans 5, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so when we suffer as Christians... We can take heart in knowing that God is confirming our identity as His blessed heirs and as His beloved adopted sons. And when that day comes and we are glorified with Christ, when we are finally resurrected and new life has been given to our mortal bodies, we will no longer face opposition from the world. There will be no resistance to the gospel or to the kingdom of God, either from the world system or from the devil. And what's more, when that day comes and we are resurrected and glorified, we will face no more resistance from that most hated enemy, the enemy within. We'll no longer be tempted to do evil, to rebel against God, and to serve ourselves. Sin will be a thing of the past. It will not be a present reality. We will finally be free from that old enemy who dogs every step, even now. We will one day be free from sin and corruption and our fallen nature. And we will be glorified along with Christ. And that's the day we long for. That's the day we look forward to. And that's the day that the Spirit of God is leading us toward. And so, this passage begins to deal with suffering. But I want to note that the majority of my own suffering in my life is because of my own sin. Because of what I have done or been tempted to do. But he gives us hope here and he tells us that we are his adopted sons. And what does the Spirit of God do? He leads every single one of his adopted sons into holiness. 
And so I, I rejoice and I hope that you can rejoice with me that we who are in Christ are adopted as his children, that we, we now call him Abba, Father. We have that intimate relationship with him where we know a state of blessed union with him. And we have joy even should we face suffering. And so I want to leave us this morning with that truth of peace with God in Christ. Nowhere else is there peace with God, but in Christ there is ultimate peace. We have peace with Him in our inner man even now, and there will come a day when resurrection happens and glorification happens, when we will be entirely at peace with God in our inner man and in our outer man, when new life has been given to our mortal bodies. And we will rejoice in that day. And imagine, think with me about the freedom that we're going to have in that day when sin no longer dogs us, when temptation is no longer a reality, when we no longer face opposition from the world, no longer face opposition from the devil, and we no longer face opposition even from within ourselves. What a, what a blessed and glorious day. And so my prayer is that we go from here thinking about that, pondering that peace with God and rejoicing that even though we live in this age where we still deal with sin, that He has given His Spirit to live within us who leads us into holiness, who leads us even to put to death the deeds of the body. And as we do so, He gives us more and more and more life in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, as we have opened Your Word this morning and looked into this brief passage, brief but encouraging passage about what you have done for us, about the way you have redeemed the sinful people. And you've not just put us in a place where we no longer uh, bear your wrath. You have done that. But you put us in a place where we are now in your family. We can call you Abba, Father. And you've put us in a place in your family where we are those who inherit these great gifts that are ours because we are in Christ. So, Father, we, we rejoice in those truths. And I pray even this morning that we would hate sin because it's your enemy, because it is hateful to you. That we would seek to by the working of the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. And that we would go forth this week knowing this life that you give us by the Spirit because of Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen and amen. Now I have a couple of announcements uh, before we uh, take off this morning. Again, thank you very much for your flexibility for uh, being willing to uh, make a change late in the week to join us here. I want to thank again our tech guys who uh, did a lot of work with some uncertain uh, unknowns and, and made it happen. So uh, praise the Lord for that. And I thank you uh, to, to those guys. Now what about next week? Where will we meet next week? I don't know. 
the uh, president made his proclamation. I'm sure everybody is aware of that. Uh, as far as I know, the governor has not made any response to that. So what's going to be next week? I don't exactly know. The word of God will be proclaimed maybe in this way, maybe in some other. Maybe, Lord willing, we can be together inside the buildings. I don't know. But that is that is my desire. That is our hope. But stay tuned. Uh, watch for emails. If you don't get an email on Thursday, give us a call on Friday at the office and, and you will find that out. But otherwise, God bless you all. And I want to close with uh, Paul's words from later on in Romans chapter 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. God bless you all and you're dismissed.